Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. While I have you here, I am excited to tell you that it's official. Doors to our all-inclusive membership are now open, and this year we've added in some awesome bonuses. Right now you can sign up to our Anchored community and unlock all of our classes and premium membership, which is packed with value. Bonuses include a free Anchored Outdoors shirt of your choice and a subscription to Fly Fisherman magazine. There's even free shipping internationally. I only open the doors to this particular special once a year, and with stock limitations, doors are only open until this Friday at 7 o'clock p.m. PST. I'll wait for you here if you want to quickly hop on over to anchoredoutdoors.com to become a member. I'll reach out to you directly to say hello and welcome you to our community. Again, that's www.anchoredoutdoors.com. Jesse Krebs is a former U.S. Air Force SEER specialist who believes that skills combined with preparation allow for deeper connection to the wilderness. SEER stands for Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, all things that sound mildly terrifying to the average person. But Jesse is the opposite of those things. She is warm, patient, thoughtful, and kind. Most of all, she's inspiring. In this episode of Anchored, I sit down with Jesse to learn more about basic survival techniques that a recreational angler may run into. During our conversation, Jesse shares her past and confronts the uncomfortable topic of abuse and barriers that are typically not discussed in the outdoor world. Mm, I was born in Michigan, and that's where I was raised as well. Not everybody can say that, but it's a beautiful place, I think, to be raised. It was a really good, I think it's a good jumping off spot in just like small town USA, right? You know, the thing about Michigan that has always surprised me is just how 
outdoorsy it is. There's a ton of fishing, a ton of hunting, um, a lot more wilderness than I had expected uh, before I'd ever visited. So it does have a lot of like the lakes are amazing. Lake Michigan, just the Great Lakes, but and there's all these other smaller lakes all around that are really beautiful as well, and a lot of forest still. Some of it, um, a lot of it has been taken down, but there's still some some decent old growth you can find. And the Upper Peninsula is absolutely gorgeous. So yeah, there's there's a lot to do in Michigan. It's definitely an outdoorsman's paradise, really. Yeah. Um, now listen, I've I have done something with you that I don't usually do. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, okay. but I, I did Google you before we got started. Uh, I, admittedly, I was familiar with who you were from your masterclass that you've done, but I didn't know much about you. And I thought, you know, I usually sit down with fly fisher people and I know a lot of their history just organically, but I didn't know a lot about you. And of course I stumbled upon your upbringing, which was surprising um, and and heartbreaking in a lot of ways. And I don't know if that's something you're comfortable discussing, but can I pick through your childhood a little bit? Absolutely. Ask away. Okay. So raised by a single mom, and I read that you had had some um, trying times growing up and it sounded like you, I mean, I don't really, it's so sensitive. I don't really know where to start, but it sounds like you use that I guess trauma, is that the right word for it? Or those experiences to help other people. So I was hoping that we might be able to do that here on the show right now. Absolutely. Yeah. My grandmother's second husband was a pedophile, which of course, none of the family knew. He was a very outgoing, outgoing, gregarious guy. Everybody loved him. Uh, He loved to travel. He was in a lot of ways, my grandma was so excited to meet him and have a relationship with him because he was much different than my biological grandfather in that he was very out- outgoing and fun loving. Um, so she really valued him and really liked him a lot. And she and I were able, luckily much later in my life, um, when I got into my mid thirties, I moved to Arizona and then Colorado. So I wasn't nearly as far away from where she was in Arizona. And we got to talk about it. And part of it was that she had been um, molested and, and abused by her father. And I think unwittingly then found a pedophile as her second husband. So it was um, challenging. She was she was pretty abusive as well. And my mother had left home when she was um, about 13 or so. And nobody knew, though, when she divorced my biological grandfather and and married my step-grandfather, I guess you could call him, um, that he was the pedophile. And mom would drop me off at grandma's house not knowing uh, what was happening with with my, um, I don't call him my grandfather, actually, um, but with the abuser, basically. Um, And they say the average pedophile will get about 100 kids in their lifetime. And when I got to a certain age... um, and he divorced grandma, I think, because I was getting too old for him. And he moved back to his ex-wife um, and had great, great great grandbabies that he could get a hold of, I think, at that point. So, you know, just a sick man. He wasn't, wasn't in his right mind. And a lot of pedophiles, unfortunately, don't see it that way. They see it as giving love, um, actually, which is pretty twisted and warped. But it definitely affected me strongly. And as I got a little older, I started having nightmares and flashbacks of experiences I'd had. 
And my refuge was to sneak out of the house and go climb a tree. That was, that was where I felt safest. And I felt like I could see everything from up there. I didn't trust mom because mom was the one that was dropping me off. Even though she didn't know, it didn't matter. Like, I just didn't feel like there was anybody I could go to. Um, and I was an only child. So I snuck out of the house and I'd climb a tree and sometimes fall asleep in the tree. And I'm very lucky I never fell out of one. Um, but that felt safe to me, whereas people didn't. Uh, and my mom was a big outdoors person anyway. So I would find a lot of refuge. I would talk to the wind and water um, and the stars and the moon. They were more my friends. And I felt very comfortable being outside versus indoors and humans didn't feel safe at all. Um, especially, you know, in that kind of scenario, you've got, you have someone who's being very different in private than they are in public, right? So there's this falseness and this mask and it's hard to know then what's the reality. So I'd meet people in public and have no idea. And then as soon as I'm alone with them, I'm feeling terrified, right? I have no idea what's going to happen next. So it was really difficult to understand human behavior and what was going on inside of me. And then working with in wilderness therapy years later, that was that was something that because I had gone through some trauma myself, it was easier then for me to reach out and understand what other people that I'm trying to help what they're going through and hopefully find ways to reach them. So it's a, you know, it's turn your wounds into wisdom, (laughs) make it work as best you can. And it really shaped the rest of my life uh, because that connection with the wilderness then led me to um, join the military and work in SEER training, which was all survival skills and everything had to do with the outdoors. And I already felt that strong connection and safety being in, in the outdoors. So it really shaped a lot of my life. So there are blessings to get from everything, right? Even the bad things that happen. Well, we cover everyone's timeline on the show. And obviously one of my main questions is how did you get into the outdoors? Now, the next thing I'm going to say, I'm going to stumble through here. So this might come across messy. I have to apologize to you because when I read that you had been, um, you know, you were a survivor, a survivor of infant abuse, I think I read and, you know, childhood abuse. I made the mistake of assuming that you were or your mom was in a physical relationship with a partner and that you had been, um, you know, physically harmed. I had never in a million years thought it would be a, that sort of abuse. I mean, I guess it's sexual abuse. And, and here's where I really owe you an mm-hmm. apology because as soon as you started talking about it, my first instinct is to immediately hide it and sweep it under the rug. And I don't know if that's because my grandfather was also a pedophile and somebody very close in my life mm. was abused very early on. And so in life, I was taught to sweep it mm. under the rug. But as a an almost 40-year-old woman now, I apologize because while you were speaking, my initial reaction was, April, why did you ask sweep it under the rug? Which um, I guess is going to segue me into my next question for you, which is, I mean, this is obviously public information. Was it hard for you to share that? Absolutely. Uh, Before I started working in wilderness therapy, which I didn't start doing that until I was in my late 30s, there were about five people that I'd ever told that I'd had infant and childhood sexual abuse because of our society, right, that wants to do that, that stays in the closet. We keep that secret. And it was through reading a lot of books and going through wilderness therapy, working in wilderness therapy for like 11 years, that I think the rage in me (laughs) grew 
the sense of outrage and literal rage. I would have violent dreams of killing pedophiles or rapists, like violent, bloody dreams of being this heroine, heroine type person going in and ripping them to shreds. Um, so it was, it was, and that was all private. That was all contained, but that's how I felt. And and those were all my teenage years. And then as I got older and just started hearing other women's stories, and not just women, it happens to boys as well, right? And all genders, it doesn't matter. Um, I just got this sense of we keep it quiet. We shut our mouths because we're there's something in our psychology that says that the the survivor, right? The victim is the one that's supposed to hold the guilt. And the perpetrators generally feel nothing. They don't, they don't see a problem at all, right? And so by keeping silent as a survivor, I'm keeping the, the whole thing under wraps, right? It's like I'm allowing it. I'm, I'm helping to help them perpetrate it versus if we all speak out, right? It's part of that Me Too movement, that concept of, hey, this is happening. And unless we wake up and acknowledge it and talk about our experiences and you understand that, yes, your best friend, yes, your girlfriend, yes, your mother, right? That all of these people have gone through this. Unless we start to be more aware of it and understand what you mean, uncle so-and-so that I always thought was blah, 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 right? My favorite, blah, blah. Unless we really acknowledge that, then people keep getting away with it. And it's not just infant and childhood sexual abuse. It's abuse of all kinds. And that needs to be shared. Our secrets keep us sick, which was, I think, coined by many people. But most recently, Debbie Ford is the one that I think of. So we need to, if we want to change it, we got to talk about it. Now, I see you as that heroine. So let's talk about this healing and this incredibly strong woman that I'm looking at right now. So what happens in your timeline from there as you start to get older and you develop this relationship with the outdoors? Yeah, I felt really strongly that I just felt peaceful and quiet and happy and adventurous. Uh, it was just so much about the wilderness and being outdoors that spoke to me and called to me and felt safe. And I was really confused as actually as I got older by people being afraid of the wilderness, though I understood the basic concept that yes, bad things happen, right? I was had gone through storms and stuff, but I usually saw them as ex exhilarating and fun versus something dangerous. And I wasn't necessarily, you know, I was in Michigan and I'm with my mom. So, you know, we're going to go home and we're going to dry off after getting soaked and we're, we're going to have dinner and everything's going to be fine. And so it wasn't until I, I decided that I wanted to go into the military. And part of that was mom took me to Europe when I was 12 and we did a six-week vacation on my part. On her part, it was, um, she was going, getting schooling as well. She was comparing the, uh, social systems between Sweden and Michigan. So that was part of her thesis. So that's how, that's how she got to go. And I got to tag along as a 12 year old. And so we got to see the Louvre and Eiffel Tower and snorkel, snorkeling in Greece and go to Oktoberfest in Germany and do all these wonderful things. And I got to just see so much of the world. And I loved it. It was just traveling was awesome and all the people I met in different languages and it was so cool. So it really gave me the travel bug. So that's part of why I joined the military, right? Is to get out of small time, small town, Michigan and go see the world more. Um, 
And I, I think the military too, I think there was a part of me that knew I needed discipline, that I was very much, I'm very much a, at my natural core, like a squirrel type person, right? <laughs> the, you see the squirrel, you run after it. Yeah. Then something <laughs> else distracts you and you're going off that direction. So I think I'm very natural in that way. And so I needed something to ground me <laughs> and help me get some discipline. And I think the military really helped me do that. Um, and I wanted schooling. I wanted to get a degree. And so the GI Bill was awesome for that. So there were many reasons why I'm like, okay, I think I think the military is the way for me to go. Uh, and then ended up getting into SEER, SEER training, survival, evasion, resistance, escape, basically teaching people what to do if they come down behind enemy lines. And I was lucky in that I went through a time in SEER when we were really focused a lot also on the non-combat skills, which is more what I prefer to teach now. Uh, a lot of people equate SEER, and it is, with behind the lines, resistance, like resisting POW camp, interrogation type of things, and evasion, right? Evading the enemy and escaping a POW camp. And all of that is is good to know in some sense, but I, w- I like to work more with people for the most part that are more into like, I want to enjoy and recreate in the outdoors. And I want to know how to do that safely and make sure I know what to do if something goes wrong. So anyway, I did that for about four years and on and on, I don't know, lived overseas for a while. <laughs> it's uh, gotten to wilderness therapy and team building ropes course stuff and got my bachelor's in educational psychology. And, you know, somewhere along the way, it all led to ending up on a TV show called Migrations with National Geographic and hiking with a group of people across the Serengeti and uh, starting a survival school. (laughs) And then from that school, evolving into another school, which is um, Owl Skills, Outdoorsy Women Learning Survival Skills. So that's what I'm into now is I want to focus on women in marginalized demographics. And I guess the people that felt like I did when I was a kid that felt like there was trauma and there was pain and people weren't necessarily trustworthy. And the wilderness has so much capacity for just healing and stress relief and empowerment and all those types of things. And at the same time, there are so many women in marginalized demographics who have been slammed with media that the wilderness is this dangerous, scary place they need to be careful of and that they shouldn't. It's not for them. It's it's only for big, tough, bearded men. <laughs> and, and so that's what I'm trying hard right now to Demyth, debunk. <laughs> it's for everybody. We can all get out there and play. I think you're doing a great job. <laughs> Thank you. I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you know, I really want to dive into a lot of the skills that you have and a lot of your accomplishments. But one of the things that's most fascinating to me about you is your demeanor and I'm, I suppose your your brain. And and what I mean by that is you've had you could be a very hard woman. Do you know, do they use that term in America? In Australia, they'll say, you're a hard woman. (laughs) And it's because of what you've seen in your past. And, you know, these experiences mold you. And being in the military, I imagine, there would have been a lot of of discipline. And um, it can make you hard. How You come across so gentle and loving and sweet. And your voice is chipper. Have you had to really focus to maintain yourself as that soft, kind not soft, but that kind person over the years? Yeah, I think there was a balance. When I was younger, I think I very much was, or at least came across as being very hard, very firm in my thinking. And I I didn't trust emotions. Emotions weren't safe. I'd figured that out pretty quick. Like feelings are irrelevant. So just shut them off. And I think that's part of what enabled me to get through SEER training, right? The training is not 
it's not a walk in the woods. It's a little more intense. So I needed to be able to shut off emotion and, hey, this is the job. This is what they want me to do and what they're expecting. I need to shut up and do it. And so there was that attitude and that focus. Um, and I, I think the trauma as a child helped me be able to deal with that. And then as I got older, I realized my relationships were failing. Um, I couldn't seem to connect with people in the way that I wanted to. And I really couldn't figure out why. And I finally, through wilderness therapy, was able to modify my behavior. And more than that, I think I really fundamentally changed in my thinking as a person and in the way that I feel and allowed myself to start feeling. And through that, I began to connect with people on a real level and began was able to become more authentic and say, this is me with all the baggage and all the mistakes and all the ugly scars and everything else. This is just who I am. And understanding this concept um, that someone gave me back in, in one of my first college courses. He's like, you know, imagine the presence of God. God just showed up in the room. How do you feel in the presence of God, right? The, right there, lightning bolts and everything. The epitome of perfection is right there. How do you feel? And it's like, I want to sit up straight. I don't want to move. I'm like, whoa, what do I do, right? This feeling of incredible anxiety and like a little fear and just not, not necessarily really happy place, but wow, just odd. Right. And he's like, okay, hold that thought in your mind. And now imagine there's a puppy and the puppy's running towards you. And it's the cutest, most adorable puppy. And it's just stumbling over itself and it's piddling on the floor and it's excitement. It's licking your face and it's bumping in your jaws, getting hurt because it's hitting you in the teeth. And, and it's just loving you so enthusiastically puppy. woohoo, Right. It's like, okay, how would you like people to see you? Do you want to be seen as God, this perfect mask, this perfect image that we try to portray to the world? Or do you want to be seen as puppy? And that hit me so hard, right? I heard that in my 20s, but I didn't really start to understand it and internalize it until my late 30s. I'm like, wow, I've been trying to be God this whole time. I've been trying to put off this perfect image and blend to whatever society or whatever culture I'm in and just try to put on the perfect image or whatever that I think that is. No wonder I'm not connecting to anyone, right? So I finally, through wilderness therapy and a lot of, of talking with folks, was able to relax that. And so now I try to use that in my teaching. So I feel like I'm a much better instructor now than I was back when I was in the military, where I was very hard. And now I tend to try to reach in and and find the vulnerable spots by showing my own vulnerability. It's like a, a dog coming up and rolling over and showing you its belly, like, hey, here I am, right? And it's like, that's that's me. We're all human. And that's how we connect. And that's how we're going to learn. And yes, you can be tough and be a badass and do really incredible, crazy things and still be soft. Do I? What do I have to prove, right? I, there's nothing to prove anymore. I can do the hard stuff. And I don't need to like put on this posturizing when, when I'm working with you and teaching you stuff. And you don't have to be tough and badass and hard, right, in order to learn these skills. You could just you can learn them without that attitude. And that's something I find really important too. It's also harder to be soft like that than it is to be hard. Because when you're softer and you're trying to communicate, you have to find words. And it's so easy to just shut down and and not have to actually conjure up the, the words of the conversation. So kudos to you. What is wilderness therapy? Oh, wilderness therapy is awesome. It's basically providing therapy in a wilderness setting. 
And it's neat because, yes, there are therapists out there and there are guides who are trained to work with people when they're going through rough things. Like it can be just failure to launch. It can be entitlement. It can be things that are fairly common. It can also be things like um, bipolar disorder and suicidal ideation and cutting, um, depression, all kinds of really hard things, drug addiction. So those are the different types of things that can address and the people help, but it's really the wilderness that's providing most of the therapy, right? A storm doesn't care where it came from, what you look like, how much you scream at it, it's going to do what a storm does. And either you build a shelter and you deal with it or you don't and you're miserable for the night. So there's no judgment when it comes to wilderness. And so the people that are there that start to work in it start to lose that sense of judgment as well. And it, it tends to be this really supportive and um, powerful place where, yes, you're going to get banged around a bit, um, but it's not personal. And it's all in, in the sense of trying to help you grow and learn and become something better and understand that life has trials and tribulations and trauma and pain. And you're strong. You can make it through it. Just learn some basic skills. And we're taught that, you know, we're not taught that in our society. It's school, they want it reading, writing, and arithmetic. They want to deal with the basics of like all this logic and all this head stuff. And we're really not taught how to be human, how to deal with interpersonal communication, how to deal with tough times and coping mechanisms. That's, that's not something that I was given back in, in school. So um, I think we just expect kids or people to kind of pick that up along the way or from their parents. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't, at least not healthy habits. So I think it's ridiculously powerful and the world would be an amazingly better place if we could get all the world's politicians to have to go through <laughs> three months of wilderness therapy before they're allowed to take office. I wish. <laughs> yeah, I wish too. Now, are you still the head instructor at, at that SEER school? I'm still the head instructor for SEER training. It's a civilian version of the military's SEER training school. So I'm still the head instructor for another, oh, only about a month and a half or so. And then I'm going to be stepping back. I may teach for them on occasion, but for the most part, I want to start turning my focus to my own school and being the head instructor and owner of, of OWL's skills. So that's the plan. Perfect. Well, this, that why I'm asking is I'm wondering if SEER incorporates any of the wilderness therapy. And if not, if that's one of the reasons why you decided to go off on your own so that you could incorporate it into your training. In a sense, yeah. I wanted to get away from the military kind of feel of it. So SEER training is so linked to the military. That's what it derived from. And I originally started it with Dan Baird, who runs the California Survival School. And his whole, I think, I and I don't know for sure, but I, I'm pretty sure Dan's main motivation was he wanted some mili a military branch sort of of his school. And that's fine, but it's not really the direction that I want to go. So I realized pretty quickly in working for SEER training that the people that are drawn to that for the most part are the ones that are more military-based and that want more of the escape and the resistance and, and that type of thing. And that's not really what I wanted to focus on. I'm fine with working with women especially and teaching some evasion skills and some concepts around captivity and if they end up in trouble, how to help get themselves out of it. Um, but that I don't want that to be the focus. I want it to be a more uplifting and and connection-based thing, not a fear-based thing. So that's part of why I'm breaking from SEER training. And Dan was willing to go along with me and let me open up a women's brand, but nah, 
I think I, I think I want to do it on my own. <laughs> Being a woman, I want it to be a woman-owned company, and I, I just want to be able to have more control over the direction it goes. If you haven't already headed over to Anchored Outdoors, why not take a sneak peek right now? You'll see we've just launched our once a year annual special where we unlock all of our classes and membership. Plus, this year we've added some great hands-on bonuses and have enabled free shipping worldwide. The offer ends this Friday at 7 o'clock, so grab it now while you can, and I'll see you soon. You've been on a lot of different shows. Did I see that you were on alone. Yeah, I'm on alone season nine and that's coming out May 26th. So, yep. I can't talk much about that one yet. Oh, so it's new. Yes. (laughs) Oh, exciting. Oh, I'm 100% tuning in. I don't watch a lot of TV, but when I do... It's going to be good. So I'm really excited to watch. Awesome. Um, so masterclass.com, look, that was an enormous accomplishment. They could have chosen anybody to run that class. We have our own masterclass, Wilderness Survival Masterclass on our website with Tom Brown Jr. I don't know if you know, but Tom Brown the third. So Tom Brown Jr.'s son. And I know he and I were both like masterclass.com is doing a survival class they could choose anybody in the world. Who are they choosing? And then I was introduced to you and I thought this woman is going to be legit. How on earth did all of that come to be? You know, you got me. Um, Hillary is the one who reached out to me and I, from masterclass and I had, I really didn't understand exactly what it all was. Cause I'm not much of a online education or TV person either. Um, so it was really, I was like, okay. And at first I'm like, oh, I'm kind of doing this other video gig with somebody right now on water and no, thanks anyway. But you know, I'm just going to (laughs) keep, and she's like, no, I don't think you understand. This could be a really good thing for you. And I'm like, okay, but I'm still doing this other thing. And I don't know if I want to have to deal with all contracts and things and mixing stuff. And she's like, no, I really think it'd be good. Can, can we talk? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, I guess. Um, and now, yeah, now that I understand more about it, I'm like, wow, I feel really honored and privileged that they contacted me for it. So, uh, I, I hope that I, I gave them what they wanted. Um, the re- the ratings and things seem to be really good on it and I get lots of good They're feedback. Great. So, yes. So I hope and the I chapters hope I, made I have seen, I have absolutely, <laughs> sorry, I'm cutting you off. The chapters I have seen are absolutely excellent. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about it? So when you are doing the class, I'm, you're not, are you doing it as if you've just landed in the bush and you have absolutely nothing or do you have some bare essentials on you? What's the scenario? Yeah. The, the scenario is you never know what's going to happen. So a lot of it is based on the five basic needs, which is what we did at Sears school and understanding that no matter what happens, no matter where you are and what just happened, inventory what you've got, figure out what you have with you. Preferably you've made some kind of a survival kit to take with you to begin with. And now you can go through this, those five basic needs and say, oh, okay, I've, water's pretty much taken care of. There's a creek right there. I've got some purification. Uh, my fire, you know, hey, I brought along a lighter or I've got a car and I know how to take the battery and connect a couple wires and, and start a fire, right? I've got, do I have shelter? What can I use for shelter? So taking care of those five basic needs in any scenario and keeping in mind that your number one priority when you're in survival is to get out of there. <laughs> so signaling needs to be huge. That's that's got to be on your mind, no matter what else you're, I don't care if you're bleeding from our artery in your leg and you're about to tie a tourniquet, you should be thinking somewhere in the back of your mind, okay, how am I going to get search and rescue here as soon as possible? Right. And that's a critical difference between primitive living 
and survival. And it's something that a lot of, a lot of even survival instructors and primitive living instructors don't make that distinction. And to me, it's extremely important and one of the biggest downfalls in our community as instructors, because people will think that, uh, I'm, I'm in an emergency situation. Oh no, I've got to, how did they do that bow and drill friction fire thing again? It's like, no, 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 right? Unless you've done, I, I use the rough estimate, about 500 fires through friction fire, doing bow and drill, making your own kit and doing it in different environments. That's not going to be your go-to, right? That's just not the way it works. Take something, take a lighter, take a good old lighter and get the fire going, right? Just don't, don't think that primitive living is going to save you in a survival situation unless you understand you're really, really good at primitive living. And just most of us modern humans aren't. It's just the sad fact. Yep. So when you go fishing, do you fish by the way? I'm not a big fisher person. My, my mother is huge. She can catch fish. She's got a magic going on. She can catch when nobody's catching anything. And my, my boyfriend, (laughs) he absolutely loves it. It's on his mind 24-7. But I've never been that good of a fish person personally. Uh, I was off doing other fix stuff. That. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so say that you're going on a hike then. You just you want to go for a five-kilometer hike in the bush. What do you pack with you just in case? Yeah. So first, know your environment. Are you going into a place where there's lots of water? Great. Then take a canteen of water and some water purification tablets. What if you end up spraining an ankle, breaking a leg, Something happens while you're out, while you're literally four kilometers out on that five click. Okay, great. Um, So what do you have to stay overnight? And if it's a warm environment, great. That might be just a a poncho just in case it rains or something that you can rig up over top of yourself. Um, And there should be enough debris. You can scrape together for a bed underneath. That's fine. How cold is it going to get? Do you need some extra layers? Maybe just take a rain poncho and something that's a couple sizes too big so you can stuff that full of materials if you get cold and turn it into a puffy. What do you have? Food? Generally, I'm not even worried about. I don't, especially if it's a five kilometer, I don't care. Uh, Unless you've got diabetes or some kind of issue like that. Medications, any critical medications, especially people that aren't going on day hikes, they get in trouble because they don't take stuff like that. They're expecting me to be back that night. But if you have a critical medication you're going to need in the next couple days, take it with you. Um, what else? If you've got any first aid kind of things, like you can do a little bit of research. What's What do people commonly end up in trouble with? Is it sprained ankles and things? Okay, then maybe take a a SAM splint or at least get a little education and a wrap, an ACE bandage or something so that you can wrap up and you can splint something if you really need to. Um, So we're looking at health, signaling, navigation. Do you have a compass or a map or something or at least a general idea of the area? And do you know your cardinal directions and how to find them, even if it's cloudy and you don't have a compass? Um, Personal protection, which is your clothing, equipment, and and any equipment you have with you, uh, shelter, and then fire, right? So you have means to take care of all three of those. And then what was our last one? Sustenance, which is water and and food, right? So water being the most important. So I'd run through those five basic needs and say, okay, what do I need for this particular environment? If it's cold out, that's going to be completely different, right? If it's getting below freezing at night, I'm still going to go off those five basic needs, but now I'm going to want something to make a better shelter with. I'm definitely going to want to make sure I have tinder as well as my fire starter. Um, I'm going to want to make sure I have something to insulate me from the ground, especially if I'm getting someplace above tree line where I don't have boughs and things I can put on the ground to insulate me from the snow. So things are going to adjust based on your environment. If I'm going to a desert, I'm not just going to take one. Maybe I'll take two canteens, right? And I'm going to have a couple, take two liters at least of water with me versus just depending on one and collecting more as I go along. So 
that needs to adjust. We need to be adaptable. The environment is not the same wherever we go. It's constantly changing. So we need to be able to adapt to that. Are there scenarios where you don't take anything at all? And I ask this for a couple of reasons. One, I've got a friend who has let me know about this horrible situation he was in where there was a storm or a blizzard in Colorado and there were all of these cars pulled over on the side of the road and everyone was stuck there for a couple of days. They didn't have clothing, food, water, they had nothing. So he suggests that you always even have something um, in your car. I was at in, I was going through a stage there where when I would fly in airplanes, I was so afraid, knock on wood, of getting in some sort of accident that I would make sure that my bag had certain survival things in it and satellite phones in it. Uh, what Am I just... Paranoid, are there any scenarios where you don't pack anything or do you always leave with something? I'm always leaving with something. I I don't like to just go off without anything. To me, that just shows poor planning. And even if I feel confident in my abilities and taking care of me, I've come across other people in trouble. So being able to have things to give them to help me take care of them if necessary or to help signal and get them out of the situation, to me, that's really important. So I'm the same way. If, if I'm getting on a, on a plane, I've got in my backpack, I've got all kinds of little things squirreled away that could help if I end up in trouble. And yes, definitely having something in the car. And things like blizzards, like people don't understand how easy it is in the winter, at least, to get water, right? And that we have, if you're 98.6, if you're uh, an different in Celsius, right? But if you're warm enough to be speaking and conscious and whatever, then your body can melt snow and ice and make it drinkable. You don't want to drink this. You don't want to just eat snow or ice because you're cooling your body temperature. And also your body has to use a lot of energy and water to melt that down and and maintain your temperature. But my body is always radiating heat. So if I have some kind of a container that I can simply keep close to my body, not right against my skin, but close to me and stuff it with snow or ice, then that'll melt it down and I can drink it as it melts. So there are techniques as well. There's a a concept of, of preparedness that's like you can know. So the ultimate knowledge would be you're a tribal member that was raised by a tribe in a particular environment and that's the environment you go to. And you have all the knowledge and skills for primitive living. You don't need anything else. You've got the environment there. You're good to go versus the people who will want to pack a pack full of all this fancy newfangled gear. And hopefully most of us are somewhere in the middle of that where we have some gear and we have some experience because some people pack all that fancy gear and have absolutely no idea how to use it or they think they're going to learn how to use it when they get out in the woods not a good idea, right? We know that our ability to think and process and learn new skills when we're in a crisis situation are not good. It doesn't work. So make sure we're doing training before we start trying to play with that kind of stuff. And and there needs to be a balance. And unfortunately, a lot of people just buy the gear in our modern culture and think that that they're going to figure it out. Not so good. That's what I do. I'm like, I've got it in the bag. I'll figure it out when I've got lots of time because I'll be lost and I'll just... It's like I can almost get a cold even with my bow drill, and now I carry a lighter. But it's like I'm going to get this bow drill thing down. Oh, I'll f- I can't quite get a cold yet, but I'll figure it out if I'm about to die. I'm sure it'll come together. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but I've actually I have been lost recently, not that long ago. I was tr- well and truly lost for the first time, really lost. Mm. And I had heard people or Tom had told me that people will take off their backpacks and stuff and leave them, and I almost like I almost did that. Because I had to crawl through this crazy thing. And then I would go one way and I was positive. I was all the way at the other end of this forest. And then I realized I'd done a circle. And that happened to me 
twice. I mean, it just, I literally at some point just looked up in the air and just started screaming for anybody. So I went kind of crazy for a minute there. And I had always envisioned that if I got lost or something had happened, that I would, you know, enjoy having this extra time to think and come together and, yeah, no, no Inspector Gadget happened. I just turned into a psycho. So <laughs> um, it was a very interesting revelation. And I obviously learned a lot from that scenario. Um, is there something that you would like to, I mean, obviously I, I would suggest that anybody watch your class, but is there one big aha moment that happened in your class that you'd like to share with people who have never taken the survival class that are thinking about it? The main thing for me to pe- to make sure that people understand is signaling and that there are three basic types. And a lot of people will think that a whistle is fine, like that's their signal. It doesn't reach a, an airplane. It's not going to reach that car three miles away with people jamming to their music driving down the road. So three basic big types of signals, and that's ground-to-air signals. And these are things like a signal blanket, like a, a mylar blanket, or a strip signal, usually in the shape of a V or an X, not an SOS. Those just blend into Mother Nature's lush curves, right? So a V or an X All as a right. strip signal, and make sure it's big, six to one ratio. Okay, so make sure it's big and angular that can really be seen from the air. It shouldn't be one foot wide and 30 feet tall. Nobody's going to see it. If it's 30 feet long, it needs a six to one ratio. It needs to be five feet wide, right? So ground air signals are one. Uh, Signal mirrors are fantastic as well. That's another type of ground air signal. Just learn how to use them, right? Improvised signal mirrors are fantastic as well. You don't have to take a big, heavy, regular signal mirror, or you can get a plastic, lightweight version if you want. But if all you've got is your cell phone or you've got a, a watch face, learn how to use that as an improvised signal mirror. So those are ground air ones. Then you have pyrotechnic, and these can be man-made like flares and marine flares and things along those lines. Or it can be either white or black smoke, depending on what you put on the fire. So petroleum products or some natural products will make it burn with black smoke. Others, mostly green vegetation, will give you white smoke. So pyrotechnic is awesome. At nighttime, it's going to be the flame, not the smoke. So ways to make the flame bigger if you can. And then the other one is electronic. And there are so many different types of electronic signals on the market now. So do some research, make sure it's going to work in your area. And that can definitely make the difference between making it or not. Understand that they're not infallible, that they do not work sometimes. They just fail. The batteries are gone. The subscription's not up to date, whatever. And they're not working. So in that case, you're going to need to fall back on the other two. (laughs) Yeah. What do you carry? What's your preferred method? It depends on the environment, right? I might take some sea dye marker if I'm going to be someplace where there's lots of lakes, which is just a dye that you can dump in the lake and turn it fluorescent green. That's really easy, right? If I'm injured, whatever, and I can't make a strip signal, I can at least do that. I usually have a signal mirror or a yeah, signal mirror definitely and a mylar blanket as well. Those are awesome. They're so reflective and they're so easy to, to carry along. And a mylar blanket, I can use it as a signal. I can use it as a water catch. I can use it as a, an overhead shelter if I know how to use buttons and tie knots. Um, I can do use it for all kinds of different things, waterproofing something, right? So having things that are multi-use is really useful as well. So I'll usually have at least those two. And depending on the length of the trip, if I'm going for a longer trip, then I'll definitely have some kind of a, a beacon of some kind. Right. Oh, this is so interesting. You know, I was bow hunting the other day and I've got these new, excuse me, these new knocks. They're called Luminox and they glow in the dark so that if you do take a shot 
you know, as night falls, you can find your arrow, et cetera, et cetera. Do rescuers do that? Do they come in at night and look for fire because it's so much easier to see in the dark? Not usually. Most time rescuers do not want to go out after dark if they can. So search and rescue would prefer to go out during the daytime. But that doesn't mean that search and rescue are the only ones you're trying to get the attention of, right? So I'll use an example. Like, let's say I fell off a a high point. I fell off something and I'm at the base of this steep cliff or this steep area. And where I am, I've got trees all around. So a fire won't be seen sideways. You can't see through the trees. But if I can get a fire out a few feet away from the the face of a cliff or something and get a fire out there, it's going to make that cliff look like it's glowing from a distance. So if anybody else is out there hiking or there are roads or there's a town or anything else out there that can see that cliff and I can make it look like it's glowing, hopefully whoever sees that glowing cliff will will later on say, wait, there's somebody missing out here? Huh, that's interesting. I saw the cliff was was glowing. It was really strange over there the other day. Maybe there was a fire, right? So that's all I'm trying to do is, is get as many people to know where I am as possible. It doesn't have to be just search and rescue. Oh, this is so interesting. Have you been in one of those situations yet? I've gotten myself in a couple situations. The one with me personally alone, I didn't really need to signal. And luckily, the um, I'm thinking of a time we were on the North Sea with a kayaker and uh, he couldn't stay afloat. He could not stay upright in that kayak. We tried everything. And so we ended up getting washed up onto an island, luckily. Um, but there were four of us in that situation. And they knew where we were. So the guy who had, who was leading the whole tour, he took care of everybody else and got them back to shore. And this guy had just started going out to sea. So three of us guides went over and tried to help him and spent hours in the North Sea <laughs> getting washed up to an island. But with that one, we really didn't have to signal because they knew where we were, which was awesome. Um, I have had to use it occasionally. Like we did, um, I had a student who was lost or she didn't get lost. She got hurt. And then I had actually gone down the wrong Canyon getting us out of there. And so when I went up top, we didn't have GPSs. So I had to triangulate our position to figure out exactly where we were and we had radios. So I was able to contact that way. Um, so yeah, I've definitely been in situations where we need help. We need to get out of there and being able to communicate or, or get somebody your location is pretty important. Okay. Tell me more about Owls. Absolutely. We just got it launched in February. It's for women and marginalized demographics primarily. Um, when I was working for SEER training, I would have most of my classes were for everybody and anybody. And then I would have a few classes that were like my, my personal prize possessions that were for women only. And I, like I said, realized pretty quickly that I really love the dynamic. I love the supportive and just friendly atmosphere I get when it's women helping and supporting other women and and teaching to them, to that demographic. So that's my preference. So OWLS was really born out of that, of me seeing a need for classes specifically for women and a women supported. I'm, I'm tired of the mansplaining. I don't think a lot of men understand the unique challenges that women are facing in learning survival skills and being in the outdoors. They just see it from a different perspective. And I feel like women often have different reasons for going into the wilderness. So I think that this type of school is really underrepresented and there aren't that many female survival instructors out there. So it's hard to create that vibe when there's a man teaching the class. So that's really what started this. And I wanted to work with the people who feel intimidated by the outdoors, who feel scared and just aren't sure and and want a really soft and welcoming entrance into those skills. And maybe they've never gone camping before or 
or the women who've gone camping a lot and spent a lot of time in the outdoors, but have gone through, gone through a couple sketchy scenarios, right? Like getting lost or something else and realize, hmm, you know, I really don't know that much about what to do if something goes wrong and I'd like to learn more. So I really want to focus on that demographic and any marginalized people of color, um, anybody who's having this issue of I, I, the wilderness I was always taught just wasn't for me. And I want to make that more accessible. What would an example be of a unique challenge that a woman would would face? Yeah, I think guys don't usually think about, like I've been on trails or in backcountry and heard people hooting and hollering and coming up on ATVs, right? And I don't, my, I'm solo, I'm out there alone. It's like, I don't want them to know I'm there. So how do I just slip off the path? I get immediately so stressed out and I- I hide. Yeah, I, I hide and I hold my breath and I just pray to God that it's not a bunch of yahoos. They haven't been drinking. Is there anyone else around? It's really, I get very anxious. Anyway, sorry to cut you off, but yes. Yes. So you're saying you try to get off the path? Absolutely. So how do I just disappear off the path? Or if I can't for some reason, if I just came around a corner and there's a bunch of people there that I don't know, or I'm getting kind of negative feelings and they already know I'm there, what behaviors can I do? Right. Um, Or simple things like starting a fire. Great. There's some techniques like bow and drill where there's some woods and there's some things that I can, I'm going to have to use a lot of muscle and a lot more effort versus there's techniques to use and different materials to use that are going to make it a lot easier. So all of the skills have have modifications that can be made if you're not that skilled in it or you're not quite as strong or whatever else. You have less upper body strength, all those types of things. That, and how do I deal with like my period and menstrual cycles? And how do I deal with um, animals being more interested in me when I'm on my cycle? Um, so those are types of things that men just aren't going to think about. And usually... An example is at SEER training, like Liesl and I were the two females in the group going through training. And the men could completely ignore technique and with the same pack on that we've got, right? But they're like 6'2 and weigh 100 pounds more. They could muscle their way up the hill and go straight up the hill. No technique whatsoever. They were exhausted at the top and hadn't learned crap, but, but they made it to the top of the hill. Versus Liesl and I with the same amount of weight that they're carrying and 100 pounds less, we can't do that. We have to learn the technique. We have to learn how to place our feet and how to traverse and how to stand on our skeletal system and take rest steps. And like, so it's, it's a completely different thing. We're carrying all this weight and women are really well designed for carrying a lot of weight. And there's technique that's involved as well. You're right. And it's funny because I have a million questions for you about smell and women products and menstrual cycles that I will not ask you right now because I know that the majority of my listeners are men and I love you guys, but I don't want you yeah. listening to me talk about my period. <laughs> but if I was in your class, if I was in your class with a bunch of other women, we would be able to talk about it and be totally comfortable. So I, I, I do understand that. I do. Yeah. And it's, you know, and things about taking your kids, you know, dogs, all that kind of stuff too. Like, yeah, there are, there are things about taking our children if we're a woman and, and we just have, I don't know, we tend to worry about that stuff a little more than the guys do. Again, no offense to the guys. I love you. But there's just more, there's concerns that are specific to women. It's, it's interesting to think about. And earlier on, you had mentioned that, you know, the outdoors has kind of been branded as this men with beards sort of um, environment. But how did that happen? Because we all used to be outdoors. Look at the tribes and the indigenous people. How how do you think that we ended up here? You know, it's it was a patriarchal society, I think, when we first got 
to the U.S. when the when the U.S. was first developed, and you know, anywhere. I, I, it's not just the U.S., but Europe as well. Like it became a patriarchal society, and we we came up with these very specific roles. And I think some of it is based on religion as well. That this is the place for the woman, and this is the place for the man. And I don't think people give enough credit to the pioneer women and the women that founded a lot of these places as well and how tough they were. It was just a different type of strength. Um, but definitely, I think they were also physically strong. But there was a, there's a mental fortitude, I think, that women have that, that men don't, actually, that a lot of men don't because they're so reliant on that physical strength. And so there's a development that happens. I've, I've, you know, I don't have children my own. I have a lot of nieces and nephews. And I've watched my sister's just go to lengths, you know, for their child that they haven't slept, it seems like in days and they're just run ragged. And yet they're still so rational and so on top of things that I'm like, holy cow. Like if you were out in the woods right now and all hell was breaking loose, like you're the person I'd want to turn to because <laughs> you're just still able to keep pushing and functioning when it just seems like you've got to be absolutely exhausted and they'll push limits like nobody's business. Um, but I feel like that it was just by society. We were kind of put into these roles. And I remember like Grizzly Adams was a big show when I was growing up and all the TV and all the media I saw and all the stories I heard in history were about men going out into the wilderness and doing stuff. And I didn't hear stories of women, at least certainly not European women, um, being able to do those types of things. So I think it's been endemic to our culture for quite a while now. Yeah. It's starting to break, starting to break out now though, it isn't is. it? It is. It? Yeah. I've, I'm meeting more and more women that are doing this kind of thing. And I'm like, yes, do it. Awesome. <laughs> You've been around a while, right? I'm going to ask you how old you are. I know that's supposed to be rude. I love it when people ask me how old I am because I'm quite proud of every year and gray hair that I've got on me these days. But absolutely, how old are you, Jesse? I am going to be 50 in a month. Congratulations! But that means you've seen some things in your life. You know, it's not like you're 20 and you're just diving into this. You've seen some very interesting shifts, society. You know, from society and politically, all environmentally, you've seen a few shifts in your 50 years. What are your hopes for the future moving forward? Because you're you're old enough to have that experience, but young enough to still have another solid 20 years under you to do some amazing things. So what are your plans and dreams in those next 20 years? I really, really want to see people connecting with wilderness in more meaningful ways and getting out there again more. There are so many more distractions that can keep us at home. There's virtual reality and awesome movies and um, online education, all kinds of things that can keep us very entertained in our homes. That wasn't the case when I was a kid. Everybody, if you wanted to have fun, you mostly went outside and it sucked when it was so awful outside that you didn't want to be out there and you had to stay inside. That was just miserable. And that's really changed now. So many kids would rather be on their phones or on their computers playing games and doing other things than being outside. And it, so I would love to see that shift because we don't protect things we don't care about. And I love wilderness, having wonderful, clear, gorgeous rivers to go fishing on and woods to go hunting and go playing and just enjoying. Those aren't going to be there unless we value them, unless we have a connection with them. And I see, I, I'm worried about this division I'm seeing of more and more people like be considering themselves city folk that would never step foot in the wilderness if they had an option. And I would really love to get those people reconnected with the outdoors and just, just 
being, being with it, enjoying it, getting healing from it, reducing stress, getting away from screens, connecting and actually having conversations with other people on the trail or while they're out there or having conversations with non-humans, right? Sit down and enjoy the presence of a tree for a while or have the squirrels come up and check you out. And I just, there's something that's really beautiful about that. And I want to see that continue. I want to see it grow. Well, you're the perfect person for it. So where can people find you at the end of all of this? I'll include all of the links in the write-up. Awesome. Yeah. Owlskills.com is the main place now. That's where I mostly am. We are also on Instagram and we have Twitter and a few other things. I'm terrible with the social media stuff because I absolutely hate it. But <laughs> I will get on there. If people contact me directly, and especially if they say that something has moved them or touched them, um, I'm much more likely to actually connect and reach out back. But I'm terrible about just point posting things ad ad whatever, no, ad hoc, just throwing stuff out there. It doesn't tend to be my favorite place to be. Like I said, I'd rather be out in the wilderness. So but I do have people now that are helping me with that kind of thing. So <laughs> hopefully have more of a presence on it. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I'm very excited to watch what you do and hopefully I can get to Owls. Where is it? All over actually. So Owl Skills is mostly based in Colorado around the Denver area, but I'll be teaching classes in different locations around Colorado. Like we'll be in Victor in a couple weeks and down in Pagosa Springs, which is my home of heart in the Southwest corner, um, probably later on in like August or September. I'm going to be up in Montana teaching with Callie Russell from season seven of Alone, um, doing Wild Women on the Water. We're doing two different sessions of that in August. I'll be with Queer Nature in Washington state. Uh, sometime early August. So that's going to be awesome. I'm going to be in Vermont next month, um, teaching some classes out there. So yeah, get on the Owl Skills website and you'll, you'll find us. We're teaching all over the place. Perfect. Oh, that's very exciting. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to come on the show. And, and I'm sorry that we started so heavy there. Um, I wanted to hear about your upbringing and you know what, you're right. We shouldn't sweep it under the rug. I mean, that's your, that's your life, right? And we don't need to hide from our past. Absolutely. It, it shapes in our direction. So we need it. We need to, can't forget our history. Can't forget our past. We want to move forward. Perfect. Well, I'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, April. It was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on the Anchored and keep doing awesome things. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening.